have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is where we're going to be in this new series that is linked to our theme, Refuge for the Nations. And Todd, uh, I'm so glad he taught, and uh, I'm sure he did a fine job of helping us see how to be partners for the nations, how to be a refuge of refreshment. But today, I want us to look at the question. So if you look at your notes, I want you to look at this question. And here's the question. Where should we go to see God's missionary heart for the nations? So just take a minute there at your table, look at one another, smile, and ask one another, where should we go to see God's missionary heart for the nations? Where would you go in the Bible to see God's missionary heart for the nations? There you go. Okay, so where, where can you go? Matthew 28, yeah, exactly. Uh, you might want to go to Acts, right? The book of Acts and the missionary journeys of Paul, Acts 1.8. Uh, you shall be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. That includes all nations. Or as Jeff said, you might want to go back to the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go make disciples of what? All nations, you know. You may want to go further back. To the covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12. You realize a lot of missions books begin the story of God's mission in the Bible at Genesis 2. In fact, Perspectives course does that. In fact, they practically require their instructors to begin at Genesis 12. But you may go farther back than that. You may go all the way back to the creation of the world. In fact, you could go all the way back, further back, to before time began. So if you look in your notes, God's heart for the nations is freely rooted in eternity past. It's going to be fully realized in eternity future. And in between that, it's progressively revealed in the scriptures, and I hope in this series to show you that progressive revelation of God's heart for the nations. And it will prepare our hearts for the world outreach celebration, not only up to it, but even after it. Because our desire is not to take missions off the shelf and unwrap it and celebrate it for a week and then wrap it all up, put it back on the shelf until next year. Instead, we want God's missionary heart so that we have a missionary lifestyle every day. So God's heart for the nations is freely... And I'm just kind of giving you this to realize where you really go. You can go all the way back. God's heart for the nations is freely rooted in eternity past. It's freely rooted. God in eternity past, before creation, before anything was made, there within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, they planned redemption. God had a heart for the nations before the nations even existed. And you can see that in the verses that I have there. All of this played out from eternity past. He had, according to Acts 2.23, a pre- determined plan. Now, some people call this a covenant of grace. The problem is that word covenant is not used. It's a predetermined plan. Whether you want to call it a covenant or not, that's great. But the, the idea is God from eternity past had a heart for the lost, for the nations. He had a heart for you before you even existed. Secondly, this 
heart for the nations is fully realized in eternity future. That's amazing. We see in the book of Revelation that this this heart of God is not only a desire that, that, oh, I wish this could happen, but it's actually going to be fully realized. You're probably familiar with Revelation 5.9 that says this, and they sang a new song. This is in, eter- uh, in, in, in the future, headed into eternity. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God... With your blood, men from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. They're not going to be floating in clouds in heaven. They're going to be reigning on the earth. But maybe you're not as familiar with Revelation 15, 3 through 4. Revelation 15, 3 through 4. Listen to this. And they sang the song of Moses the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways. Now listen, King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For, listen, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Not only that, when you go to the last two books of uh, the last two chapters of the Bible that reveal eternity future, here's what it says. And it says, I saw the new creation. There was no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. But listen, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the honor of the nations into it. And it goes on, nothing unclean. And then Revelation 22, 1 through 3, tells us that he showed him a river, a water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb, in the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life. We're going to talk about that. Bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So God has a heart for the nations that's freely rooted in eternity past. By His grace, He chose to prepare His Son to redeem the lost of the world. And it's going to be fully realized in the future. But what I want to see in this series is God's heart is progressively revealed. It's progressively revealed in the Scriptures. And we're going to kind of take a quick view of that in this series. So you're going to want to be here each week for it. And here's where it begins. It's progressively revealed and it begins back at creation. And so often when you think about missions, you think about the Great Commission. You think about the book of Acts. 
You think about these missionary passages. You may even go all the way back to Genesis 12, but I'm here to say you want to go all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So have your Bibles open. Let's read Genesis 1, 26 through 28, because this is God's heart for missions. This is God's heart for the nations. Let's look at it. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. They're going to be the lords of the earth, man in God's image. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Image, image, image. God created him. Male and female, he created them. And then look at verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so there we have God's heart for His creation, which obviously includes all the nations. And here's what I want you to get for today. The living God is a missionary God with a heart for the nations. The living God is a missionary God with a heart for the nations. And you say, well, what's that got to do with me? It has a lot to do with you. Because our purpose in life is to partner with Him, as Todd talked about last week, in fulfilling His purpose for creation through His plan of redemption. We are to partner with God to fulfill His purpose for creation, Genesis 1, 26-28, through His plan of redemption. You said, well, I'm not quite sure what all that means. That's what we're going to look at, okay? So here we go. We're going to look from Genesis 1 through 3, these three chapters, we're going to do a survey, and we're going to see two proofs that God has a heart for the nations. And we're going to see, first of all, that God's purpose for creation reveals His heart for the nations. And and that's going to be in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we're going to look at Genesis 3, and we're going to see God's promise of redemption reveals God's heart for the nations. So let's dive in, and let's take a look. God's purpose for creation reveals His heart for the nations. Let's look at Genesis 1 through 2. But to begin with, we need to understand this. Number one, the Bible is God-centered and people-focused. The Bible is God-centered and people-focused. And there's a difference in that. God-centered and people-focused. How do we know that the Bible is God-centered? How do we know? Do, is that even true? How do we know if that's true? How do we know it's God-centered and not people-centered? And I would say, since we're here in Genesis, let's go to Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 tells us what the Bible is all about, what history is all about, what life is all about. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning... Okay, let's try that again. In, a, in the beginning... Oh, man. Okay, just just in the beginning, God. Just stop right there. God, He's the subject. 
He's the subject. Don't see that's what happens. We read through that and we go, you know, God created and let's get in in six days and how this thing. No, in the beginning, God is the subject. That is the Bible in one word. The Bible in one word is God. You'll never understand the Bible until you realize it's centered on God and His glory and not you and not me and not any ethnic group, not any cultural issue. You'll never understand the Bible, God's revelation, or for that matter, God's mission in the world until you understand that it's God-centered, not man-centered. The Bible is God's self-revelation to His creation out of a heart of love for all peoples, for all nations. It's God's self-revelation. So, how do we know that? We look at how the Bible begins. That's the first thing. We also know this by looking at how the Bible ends. Look at how the Bible ends. Now, I could take you to Revelation 22, 3-5, a passage that we just read, and and talk about how God is at the center, God's throne is at the center of eternity future. But I want to take you to a different place. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And to save time, I have it in your notes. And here's what it says. This this verse is often overlooked because it's not in the book of Revelation. But this verse tells you how everything's going to end. And here's what it says. In verse 24, Then comes the end when Christ hands over the kingdom to God and to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, when all things are subjected to Him, that is, Christ, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, that is, to Christ. Why is this going to be the end of history and the beginning of eternity? So that God may be all in all. See, we forget this. And there's a, there's a lot of, of, of different views of eschatology, the end things. There's a lot of things that, that are very popular right now. And, 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 but you don't hear a lot of people talking about this, that in reality, it's not the kingdom that's the ultimate end. The ultimate end, end is God. History in the Bible ends the way it began. God. God. Everything's going to be subjected to Him. Even the Son takes the kingdom and subjects it to Him. So, Bible and history ends like it begins, God-centered, not man-centered. But, here's the balance. Even though the Bible is God-centered, it's also people-focused. Now, how do we know that the Bible is people-focused? Well, first of all, the creation of people is the crown of the the first creation, the old creation. The creation of people is the crown. You see, after everything's been created, man is created. And in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it's only man and woman who are made in the image of God. It's only man and woman who are put in charge of over all of creation. And so when you see creation, everything's created. But up here is... that's This is a woman. Okay. Is and the man is leading, the woman is there helping, and together they 
are ruling over all. How do we know that the Bible is people-focused and not animal-focused? Because man and woman is made in the image of God. It's not plant-focused. It's not even the ecosystem-focused. Okay? I'm not even writing that right. It doesn't matter. The point is, there's. A, if you listen to the news, you know, every... Listen... The Bible is people-focused because only people are made in the image of God. Okay? Number two, the redemption of people is the climax of the new creation. The redemption of people is the climax of the new creation. When you go to Revelation 21, 1 through 5, here's how the new creation is going to begin. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying this, Behold, remember that word, God's doing something? The tabernacle or the dwelling of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. That's the climax of the new creation. It's people-focused. God-centered, but people-focused. Okay, that's the balance. But how does God's purpose for creation reveal His heart for the nations? Let's move on to point number two, and this is it. The Bible reveals God's purpose for creation is a promise to be fulfilled. God's purpose for creation is revealed to be a promise to be fulfilled. And as simple as I can take, and you say, where do you find that promise? Where do you find his purpose and his promise for creation? You find it in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that passage that we just read. Look at it there in your Bibles. And I'm going to give you as simple as I can. God's purpose for creation is a simple promise. And this is God's promise. My presence will rule with my people in my place. Three Ps. My presence will rule with my people in my place. So, in a sense, if we add to this picture, God up here as creator, God's presence ruling with his people over his place. So, think in terms of God's presence, God's people made in his image, ruling over God's place. That's as simple as I can make it. That's as simple as it is in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And this promise, this purpose of creation, is progressively revealed in the Bible until you come to Revelation 21, 1 through 5, where he says, My tabernacle, my dwelling place will be among men. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is progressively revealed. This is God's purpose for creation. This is God's heart for the nations. All right? Now, notice on your notes, 
I've shown you how this progressively plays out. Now, I've left out tremendous amount of details. You don't know how much that pains me. I've left out tremendous details. This is not a chart of, of the end times. This is just showing you how God's promise is progressively revealed. It always comes down to God's presence ruling with God's people in God's place. Are you with me? Okay. So look at, there's God's plan, His promise for His creation, presence ruling with my people over my place. How do we see that in creation? Genesis 1, 26-28. Well, we have a creator who's ruling with his image bearers, Adam and Eve, and their children, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Rule over the earth. It begins in the garden and it's to spread out to all creation. But as you know, problems entered in, right? Very soon, they rebelled. Okay. And then we have the rest of the Old Testament. We have Old Testament Israel. And the Creator has now become the Redeemer, Yahweh, the I Am God. And the image bearers are gathered into a people in the nation of Israel. And that place is no longer the whole earth. It's now centered on the promised land. Okay? But there you go. When you look at the history of the Old Testament, you've got the Lord ruling with Israel over the promised land with a goal and a heart for the nations. And of course, Israel failed in that, just as Adam and Eve failed. And Jesus comes and we have the New Testament church, which is basically the Gospels and Acts. But what do we have? We have Jesus, the risen Lord, Ruling over the members of his body who are in Christ, the church. But where's the place? The place is now our hearts and the assembly of God's people. It's no longer a geographic place at this time. But yet it is because churches are called local churches in geographical locations. But our goal is not to rule over Crestview. Okay, our, our goal is not to rule over Kansas City. No, we are the subjects of a kingdom that has not yet fully come. And so the king is ruling over us. We are the sacred space. We're the temple. The us assembled here this morning, we are the place, the, the, the temple, and ultimately Christ himself. But there's going to come a day when the king comes back and his millennial kingdom will come. You can see that in Revelation 20. And it's a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. Now, some don't think it's literally thousand years. It's just in a long time. Others think it's a spiritualized thing that's not going to happen at all in that respect. But I believe you go to Revelation 20, you'll see it. And Jesus is on this earth as the King of Kings. And He's ruling not only Israel, but us as the church... And we're here for the nations because we just read those passages. Something's going on on this earth where the nations are coming in. Didn't we just read that? He's the king of the nations and the, the nations are going to bring their honor and their glory into the kingdom. Well, is that all spiritualized? Is that all just a spiritual picture? Or is that going to be a literal reality? I would say to you, based on Revelation 20, it's going to be a real kingdom with Him on this earth fulfilling all these promises that have been made through the covenants. But ultimately, that's not the end. Because in the new creation, I read to you 1 Corinthians 15, 
ultimately, it's going to be God's presence as the Father over all His image bearers who are in Christ's image. And the place is now going to be not the garden, not the promised land, not you and me as believers, but it's going to be the whole new creation, heaven and earth. Isn't that cool? So this thing that started really small with a couple in a garden as a part of this planet is going to progressively, even though man continually fails and sins and messes it up, God, grace and purpose is greater and it will be fulfilled to where it fills the new heavens and the new earth. Is that not cool? You say, well, where's God's heart for the nations? Well, good night. He's got a heart for a whole new heavens and new earth. No one's excluded from that, right? If they choose to accept the good news. Now, how is God going to fulfill this purpose and keep His promise? Let's move on to the third point. God's purpose for creation is going to be fulfilled by people created in His image. God's going to do this through people who are created in His image. So God could just do this directly, but He chooses in His own wisdom, in His own wisdom and sovereign choice, He's going to do it through people made in His image. So it's probably important for us to ask, what does it mean for people to be created in the image of God? Now, I got a whole couple rows of books by uh, scholars and, and men way smarter than me and more godly than me and more years studying this. That'll I, I mean, there's people are all over the place on this, right? Because it is such a profound concept. I'm giving to you... Uh, it's like an eclectic approach. I'm just kind of packing it all in there from Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Because I think that's what the Bible teaches. So here we go. I'm just letting you know that people see it different ways. You got the Creator, and then you got these image bearers. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? As simply as I can make it, it means this. We are unique. So first of all, let me just say, it's a uniqueness. Nothing else was created in God's image. He created everything else, animal, plant, creeping, birds, swimming, flying. We got Spiders are crazy right now. You guys got a lot of spiders? It's like a spider fest. Okay, and we got big ones. And they're like, it's like, it's like a haunted house around our house, right? Okay, God created those, but not in his image. So, Gwen, it's okay for me to kill those boogers. Gwen's like, don't kill them. I'm like, I'm killing them. They're dead. Okay, so here's the thing. We're unique. We're unique. But what is unique about us? What is unique? I would put forth to you, it's three things. First, we enjoy a unique relationship with the person of God. We enjoy a unique relationship with the person of God. And we see this in even how man was created. God created him out of the earth. Do you know he created the animals out of the earth too? But when it came to Adam, he breathed the breath of life into him. It's like a mysterious mouth-to-mouth. It's showing us the intimacy of God with people. These are his pre- people are his pre- precious 
possession. And we can have a relationship with God. we've, We've had several dogs. I've never seen one of my dogs pray. I've never seen a cat pray. I don't even think cats could be saved. Dogs, I think, could be saved. But, sorry, I know Jim. Jim shakes. His, yeah, Jim just shakes his head at me. I know you're you're a cat lover, aren't you? No. Oh, the Browns. You guys are right. No. Okay. No one. See, it's true. No one's a cat. Anybody a cat lover? Oh, oh and, and you're proud enough to raise your hand. You, Rick, you don't even have cats, don't you? I like cats, but I can't eat a whole one by Man, I'm so glad you came today to share that. That was worth that was worth you being in class today. All right, unique relationship number two. We enjoy a unique role, a unique role as representatives, as His people. Role or representative, okay? Our role is to be representatives of God as His people. Three, we enjoy a unique rule over, over. His place. So here's what's interesting about image bearing. It relates to all three of these aspects of God's plan. As image bearers, we have a unique relationship with the person in, in, of God. We get to enjoy His presence in a way none of the rest of creation gets to. We enjoy a unique role as His people to re- represent Him to the rest of creation. And we have a unique role, a rule, over God's place. So you see how image, God's going to fulfill His plan through people made in His image. And therefore, all the way through this, you have mediators, you have image bearers, you have Adam, and then you have Noah, and then you have Abraham, and then you have Israel, and Moses, and then you have Jesus and the church, you always have this mediator, these image bearers who are have a unique relationship. They enjoy that. They have a unique role to represent God, reflect God, likeness, and they have a unique rule over God's place. Whatever that place, and that place cha- you know, changes throughout the progression. Someday it's going to be over the whole new creation. All right? Now, how will God's image bearers do this? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to fulfill God's creation plan. I know that's not how the song goes, but the song was written in this dispensation, this age, the church age, but it's true in every age. How will God's image bearers fulfill God's creation plan? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to fulfill God's creation, and missional purposes. So my prayer for you is that with the World Outreach Celebration, same prayer for me, that we will trust and obey what God is leading us to do and what God is showing us to do. Now, all this is... And and by the way, if I had time, I would take you to Genesis 2, 15 through 17. This is what the tree in the garden... This is what the tree... In the garden, the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are in the center of, God, of the garden. And God has only one command, one prohibition. His, his command is, go and knock yourself out. 
Enjoy all of creation. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it. Eat of everything. He has one prohibition. Just don't eat of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because that's at the center of the garden. Was there something special about that fruit? No. And it wasn't an apple necessarily. We don't know what it was. Because the fruit's not important. It's not the fruit. It's the word and the rule of God. That's what's important. God ruling through His Word. The point was, you will enjoy My presence, you will be My people, and you will rule over My place as long as I am at the center of your life. As long as My Word directs your life and rules. As long as you trust and obey Me. Then, you will be blessed in all that you do. Then you will enjoy my presence. Then you will truly reflect me as my people. Then you will rule over my place. Now, all that's good. In fact, God said it was very good until Genesis 3. So here's the second point. God's promise of redemption reveals His heart for the nations in Genesis 3. How does this go? Now, I'm skipping over a lot of things in these chapters because we're trying to hone in on God's heart. But in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, we see that the image bearers rebel. There is a rebellion that enters here. Rebel. And how do they rebel? You can already tell me from what I taught you. What did they do? They ate, they violated the one prohibition, and they removed God from the center of their life because they said, you know what, I don't need God's rules. I don't need God's rule over my life. I don't need God. I'm going to take of this tree, and I'm going to become like God. I'm going to do things my way, on my terms. I'm going to do it independent of God. Now, here's the, here's the sobering thing. How many of us lived that way last week? How many of us lived in such a way that God wasn't at the center of our lives? How many of us lived in such a way that we weren't trusting His Word and obeying Him and enjoying our relationship and and reflecting His goodness and His grace and His righteousness to the people around us? How much were we truly ruling because we were submitting to God's Word? Well, they rebelled against that. Let's look at it. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Notice what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said? See, the question becomes God's word. That's the issue. Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You see, God's restricting you. But it's not any tree. How many trees was it? Uno. Uno. And then the woman said to the serpent, and here's when you get debating the Bible with unbelievers, here's what happens. The the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat of the trees 
but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle, there it is, the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it or touch it or you will die. She adds to God's word. He said, don't eat it. All he said was don't eat it. So you begin to question God and the word. And the serpent said to the woman, now he outlined outright lies, you shall, you surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the temptation is to become little gods independent of the Creator. And that's the temptation every day, is for us to get up and live like little gods, independent of our Creator, of our God. And so, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and that it was delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her. And there's some, it's not clear, but it seems to imply that Adam's standing right there with her. That Adam is, is not leading, not protecting, not guarding. Instead, he's passive. And she's taking the lead, and she's leading him. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And when they heard God's voice, they ran and they hid. Guilt, shame, and fear. Now, here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. The rebellion against God's rule is seen in how the created creation order is reversed. It's reversed. Now, I've got a chart there, and we can't, I, I can't take you all the way through it. But I just want you to see how there's this reversal of God's creation order. A reversal of... Man, that's a mess. A reversal of this, Okay. People, God's presence over God's people over God's place. It's supposed to go like this. This is the order. Right? This is the order. God, His people, creation. Okay, so notice the order of creation, or you could say the design of creation, was creator, image bearers, and the image bearer, Adam leads... The man leads and the woman helps. And together, they rule over creation. Not in competition, but they complement and they complete one another in their different roles, but both made in the image of God. But in the rebellion that we just read, the order is reversed. Who takes the initiative? The Satan in the form of a serpent, the creature... And the creature goes to the man or the woman? To the woman. And then the woman gives to the man. They both sin. But do you see the reversal? And then, where's God in that picture? He's, in, he's not even mentioned. So you have this reversal. Where the creature is the one leading, right? But then... God is sovereign. What happens with the grace of the Creator? He knows all this is taking place. He knew it was going to take place. So what happens in Genesis 3, verse 8, God, the order... Ah, where am I getting my pins? God 
maintains the order. And who does he call? So God takes the initiative to find the shamed, fearful, hiding couple. And who does he call first? Adam. And Adam, being the gentleman, blames his wife. And so who does God talk to next? That was satire, by the way, ladies. Who does he talk to next? Eve. And Eve, being a lady, blames serpent. And if you're, if uh, Roberto was here, he would tell me the joke, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Okay. I'm sorry, Roberto would share that with me every time I taught this lesson. And I say, you're right, you're right. Because he had no one to blame, right? Now, God does that. But then when God goes to cursing, he reverses the order because that was, that's the curse. And so who does he curse first? The creature. And then who is cursed? Eve. And then who is cursed? Adam. See, he goes in the reverse. And then, when he thrusts them out of the garden, God's plan and purpose cannot be hindered by sin and rebellion. And so God is chooses to be the Redeemer and gives them the promise of redemption. And Adam is still the leader, but due to sin, he seeks to dominate abuse and exploit his wife and men in general without Christ do that to women. And Eve seeks to overthrow the leadership of her husband and women without Christ tend to usurp and and, and make a name for themselves. And the ground is cursed. And the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. Now, here's the good news in that. Number three, God's heart is revealed in His promise of redemption. What is God going to do about this? Well, I've already kind of told you, but here it is, Genesis 3.15. So look at Genesis 3.15. And we'll pick this up next week, but here's what I want you to see. Read it. And I will put enmity, he's speaking to, this is the curse on the serpent. And here's what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And that word for bruise is the same word in the Hebrew and it's probably best uh, translated strike or attack or crush. I, I like strike. Because when you hit someone on the head, you strike them. And when a snake uh, bites you on the heel, it, it strikes. Okay, And that's what the word means, strike. And so here's what you get. God's heart is revealed in this twofold promise, which is called the first gospel. God in His grace reveals good news. And here it is. The seed of the woman, a seed, singular, will strike the head of the servant of, of the serpent with a death blow. The good news comes first, the serpent's going to get crushed. But in that crushing, in that striking, there's going to be the seed of the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman with a death bite. And so what's, what's going on here? Well, basically, God is promising two things. There's going to be a victorious Savior who is strong enough to overcome the enemy. 
But in crushing and striking the enemy's head with a death blow, you step on a snake, that snake is going to strike and bite his heel, and it's a poisonous snake, and it's going to be a death bite. So you've got someone who is a victorious Savior, strong enough to crush the enemy, and yet a vicarious sacrifice. He's going to die and shed blood for the sins of the nations. That's what's pictured there. Now, we don't know all that yet. We see it progressively revealed, but there's this twofold theme that there's going to be a sovereign warrior that's going to crush and be victorious, and there must be a death. There's going to be a death in that victory. Well, you can see the cross in that. Can you not see that? That Christ came, the seed of woman, died on the cross, the death blow of the devil, and yet in that death blow, he rises from the dead as the victorious sovereign Savior. Isn't that beautiful? Well, we don't know all that yet, but it's all in there. It's all in there. So the question is this, why is Jesus the refuge for the nations? Or I'm sorry, who will be the seed of the woman? Only God can be such a victorious Savior. I mean, Adam and Eve are enslaved to the devil. They can't save themselves. So only God can be the seed of the woman. And yet, only man can be that vicarious sacrifice to pay for the sins. Men sin, a man must die. So, who will be the seed of the woman? It's going to be a God-man. And we don't know all that yet, but it's all in there, and it's going to be progressively revealed. So here's the question. Why is Jesus the refuge for all the nations? Because God's heart has always been to rule over all creation and every nation with His image bearers. Whether they're in Tanzania, immigrants in Berlin, whether they're AIDS children who are orphaned and left to die, It doesn't matter because God's heart has always been to rule over the nations and all creation through his image bearers. And it all starts in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I hope you remember that. Okay, this is laying the foundation for the rest of the series. I just laid the foundation for all of history. That just laid the foundation for the whole eternity. God's presence, ruling over God's people, uh, ruling with God's people over God's place. Are you with me? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that your wisdom is beyond our comprehension. Your mercy is greater than our sin. And your purposes and plans cannot be frustrated. They cannot be hindered. And they cannot be stopped by our sin or our enemy, the devil. Your purpose is going to be accomplished. You have a heart for all peoples and every nation. Lord, help us to get in on your plan. May this week you be at the center of our lives. And may we trust and obey your word as we're led by your spirit. And may we as your people enjoy your presence Reflect your goodness and rule by submitting ourselves to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name.
For He is the God-man, the seed of the woman, the victorious Savior, and the vicarious sacrifice. In His name, we pray. Amen. 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 All right, we covered a lot.